Welcome to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast, hosted by the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association. We provide you with up-to-date information on health topics geared towards the Orthodox Jewish community. This podcast content is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice or as a substitute for the medical advice of a physician. Welcome to the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association podcast. I'm your host, Elisa Minkin. I'm a general pediatrician and proud JOMA member, and I am super, super excited to be here today with Dr. Nini Munoz. Hi. Hello. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Thanks for being here. I really, really appreciate it. I know you've been so busy. So Dr. Munoz, originally from Barranquilla, Colombia? Yep. Ooh. Obtained her PhD in electrical engineering from Cornell University in 2014. She completed her BS from Cornell as well. She currently works as the fabrication, design, and process integration lead engineer of inertial navigation systems for Garment International in Golita, California. Prior to working in the aviation sector, she worked extensively on the design of vacuum systems and materials characterization for semiconductor processing. She specialized in the design of sensors for electrochemical detection and neural interfaces culminating with her graphene sensor work interfacing with the enteric nervous system of mice. So that is incredibly complicated stuff. I do not understand it. Um, (laughs) And that's not why I asked you to speak. I asked you to speak because you have this amazing, incredible Instagram account called Nini, N-I-N-I and the brain, um, which I check every single day with these awesome infographics. And I feel like I, I entitled this talk clickbait, follow the data, not the headlines, because we are moving at the speed of light. Information is assaulting us from all directions. And I feel like we make quick split decisions based on headlines instead of understanding what's really happening. And I feel like this all came to a head for me anyway, last Friday. <laughs> and the CDC changed their minds yet once again on masking. And I would love if we could start by talking about what that was all about with that whole Cape Cod outbreak. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, viruses, when given the ability to replicate, they mutate. And that's what we have been seeing from the very beginning of the pandemic. You know, the the first uh, uh, variants were emerged, I think, in the spring of 2020. So not soon after we had, you know, the first outbreaks in Wuhan. And and so, yeah, and so eventually, you know, we've, we've got this variant, uh, which is highly transmissible. So before that, we had seen the alpha variant, which we know was, uh, the driver of one of our waves, the same as we saw in the UK. And, and then we had this delta variant, which emerged in India roughly in October of 2020. And that caused huge viral spread in India. And we saw what happened in that community, right? I mean, we, I mean, we saw a a black fungus epidemic, because they couldn't give patients enough oxygen. So they had to give them cortical steroids, and they had to give them so, 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 so much of that, that it really compromised their immune system. This is what I I always kind of talk to people about, I say, hey, you'd realize that your outcome is highly dependent on what your healthcare can provide for you. And so, of right. course, you know, we are so uh, globally interconnected that, you know, inevitably, you know, the Delta variant was just going to spread. And, and, and the reproduction number, so this is, you know, what we say on average, how many people can one person infect, even though we know with, um, with, with SARS-CoV-2, it's driven by like these super spreading events, but we still find an average number all of a sudden went from where it was with the alpha variant, alpha was roughly around like three, three to four 
Um, that was the, the variant that emerged in the UK. And now mm. we're seeing a, a, a you know, transmissibility uh, that is roughly like twofold higher than that. So we're placing it at roughly like five to eight. It was a very high reproduction number. So that's mm. how many people each infected person can potentially infect, um, which has huge implications, uh, you know, for herd immunity, right? So now we're, we're looking at, we need more people vaccinated um, to even control, you know, the, the spread of disease. Um, and so naturally, you know, we, we've, 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 we've been going through our vaccination campaign, definitely lagging, not where we would want to be. Uh, but I think people really forget that vaccination is not an individual endeavor, nor is it an individual outcome. Uh, I think it, that's easily, uh, lost in translation when you hear headlines, oh, the vaccine is 95% effective. And so people say, mm-hmm. oh, I have a 95% chance of not getting sick. Right. And I'm like, no, 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 no. That's not what it means. Mm-hmm. You have your, your relative risk compared to somebody that is unvaccinated is 20 times lower. But, but, but then again, we got to pay attention to that nuance, right? That the little statement compared to those who are unvaccinated, which really means that if your transmission levels are high in your community, your risk goes up. It's a, it's a relative risk. And so with Delta, right, we, we have a lot more transmission. So by that token, we expect for them to, for, for there to be more breakthrough infections. That's just statistics. And, and we know that now the, the vaccines are still highly effective. Uh, we do see some, some viral escape. So we are seeing that reduced effectiveness before we were like at 90, 95%. Now the estimates are anywhere between, uh, you know, we've seen data from Israel at 64%. Mm-hmm. But th- then again, they were tracking, I think, both symptomatic and asymptomatic infection. And then the data out of like Scotland uh, and the UK and Canada places us at like 80 to 88 percent. Right. So so a lot of variability. I want to go back for just a minute. I want to go back for just a minute because I, I want to really be clear on the definitions that my understanding is that we're trying to control severe outcomes. It's not as important how much COVID is spreading. We may not get control of that, but we've got to reduce the severity, the hospitalization, the deaths. Yeah, that's, in fact, I mean, I think people forget, right? You know, that people mm-hmm. forget that initially when, when the vaccines were in clinical trials, that was mm-hmm. the benchmark. But we just, mm-hmm. you know, we, we outdid ourselves, right? Like scientists right. outdid themselves with what they were able to get. But in reality, the original, uh, you know, the original like objective, like one of the, one of the, and, and, and yes, the, the, the primary endpoints were to look at infection, but specifically severe disease, hospitalization mm-hmm. and death, because that represents a huge burden on our healthcare system. And because people forget, you know, if, if your healthcare system is burdened, the risk associated with all other conditions and comorbidities and even like uh, unintentional injuries, all that mm-hmm. risk goes up. And we saw it in 2020. If you take a look at the leading causes of death in the U.S. in 2020, you notice that we we usually see a bit of an increase that's graded by population. So you usually expect to see a little bit more. But in 2020, we saw a, a bit of an excess amount in, in, you know, in, in mm-hmm. certain outcomes, such as like heart disease, because those patients could not get to a hospital. 
right? Or they were afraid of going to one that was too late. They were either afraid of going or the hospitals were overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing some of that Mm -hmm. right now. Mm -hmm. Um, So naturally, we're going to get more breakthroughs. But of course, it's always misrepresented. So, you know, I Mm -hmm. actually did a whole post on this. And and it was funny because I was just doing what we call like the back of the envelope calculations. Mm -hmm. And um, and I happened to be like right on the target. So the, the headline said, 75% 75% of the people or 74% of the people that were infected were uh, vaccinated, which of course makes it sound as though the vaccines are not working. But, you know, I always tell people, listen, if 100% of the people are vaccinated, 100% of your cases are going to come from your right. vaccinated group. So it's, it's really just, you know, it's, it's what we call the base rate fallacy. Mm-hmm. Um, so what you really need to understand there is what percentage of the people were vaccinated. And I actually looked up the numbers. So I looked at the, you know, Massachusetts produces a weekly report and I looked at mm-hmm. it and I was like, oh, the populated, you know, the, 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 the population that was vaccinated was really high because Massachusetts has one of the highest vaccination rates in the nation. Right. And, um, and this was, you know, a, a 4th of July weekend, uh, you know, there were mainly men, uh, and this was in, uh, in Providence, Massachusetts. And I looked at the demographics, right? So this is a lot of uh, the people that were there were primarily from the LGBTQ community. And I looked mm-hmm. at the demographic and I looked at their polls and I was like, I am certain that 90% of the people there or more were vaccinated. Cause in, right. I, I just want yeah. to, I, I, Right. I just want to introduce just a little bit because I just want to, I, we always have to have context and we're talking about the Cape Cod, I think it was Barnstable. Barnstable, yeah. Um, of a group of, I think, about 400, an outbreak, a very large, like a super spreader event. It was a super spreader event. But the concept is also really important because this was like, Mm -hmm. they weren't wearing masks. They were partying Mm -hmm. and dancing Mm -hmm. and like hanging out and going, like these were house Mm -hmm. parties. It was like, it was like a college town party. And so context is also important. And so, but again, if you take a look at the base rate, so now we have the numbers. It came out today. So as, right. and I, I predicted that 90 to 95 percent of the of, of the men were or, or the people there were vaccinated. And out of 60,000 today, the reports are 57,000 were vaccinated. So, yeah, that puts us right at 90, almost at 95 percent. Right. Of the people there mm-hmm. were vaccinated, which, yeah, as I said, the bigger that the bigger the, the the portion of the population that's vaccinated, the more the cases are going to come from that demographic because eventually you won't have people that are unvaccinated, right? And so, uh, and so yeah. So what you want to compare is you want to compare those rates, right? So technically, from what we saw, the the people that were um, vaccinated had like a three or fourfold reduction. So the the, the efficacy or the effectiveness because this is a real world event, uh, real world data was 84%, which is right in line with what we've seen in the UK, Scotland, Canada. Right. So, right. so to make it very simple, right? to make it very simple, when you say 75% were vaccinated, but 95% of the population were vaccinated, there was much more percent of people who were unvaccinated, who got COVID. Exactly. Than those who Compared were to, yeah. So, so if you think about it, there were, there were 469 cases. And I believe about 346 were in the vaccinated, right? So that means mm-hmm. that there was roughly like, you know, 125 in the vaccinated, but 125 cases out of 3,000 people that were unvaccinated. 
versus much larger percentage. Yeah, versus 346 cases out of 57,000 people that were vaccinated. So again, it's called the base rate fallacy precisely because of that. Because people for people don't tell you what the denominators are, right? You can't get a rate unless you get a denominator. And of course, the context is important. It's really important. I mean, this was some heavy partying. Uh, right. Than anybody Very that's close. Right. a yeah. lot of intimacy, yeah, a lot, a lot of, of intimacy. a lot of intimacy, a lot of sexual intimacy. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. under that context, I would say these vaccines are amazing. amazing. <laughs> but the context is not in the media, and then the no. CDC comes out and says, "Oh, they're just as infectious. Vaccinated people are just oh, as infectious." Oh, yeah, that also was ter- um, terrible. One specific, you know, yes, if you are spitting all over each other, you might yeah. get sick still. Well, it, it, do and, and, and it doesn't even like it doesn't even make sense because if you think about it, if you think about it, just clinically, and you would know, right? Uh, you know, as a pediatrician, you would know mm-hmm. that if if the if, if if the vaccinated people are not getting any sicker, something must be happening there differently, right? Their body must right. be clearing out that infection faster, right? And we already know from, you know, not just like the reports from hospitals, but, you know, I actually ran a poll amongst healthcare workers on my profile and all of them responded and told me, oh, mo- like 95% plus of my patients right now are unvaccinated. So mm-hmm. there's a clear contrast between, you know, the, the, the recovery between a vaccinated and an unvaccinated person. So when you think about it, I mean, when that came out, I was like, there's no way. I want to look at the data. And and, and and I think I did a post that day kind of like calming people down. And I said, mm-hmm. no, mm-hmm. there's a right. lot that we still don't know. Because as I said, so much of what I like to do in my account, I don't like to drive headlines. I like to be very data driven. I like to talk mm-hmm. about limitations because I really want people to start thinking critically about these things because mm-hmm. this information is not going to stop. But if I can encourage people to have what we, as I was saying earlier, uh, what we call a top-down response, which is information mm-hmm. first, then emotional response, as opposed to what we call like the bottom-up response, which is driven by like the emotional centers of the brain, where it's like, I don't even process the information. I'm just going to have like a response to it. We want to avoid right, that. We right, want but, to you know, avoid that. <laughs> It's normal. Yeah. It's normal to have that reaction. I know I did. No, and I want to make another point though. Is. And fear is yeah, totally, I, I mean, we, we, we evolved to have, we wouldn't mm-hmm. be alive if it wasn't for fear. We've been, we would have been eaten by the lion, right? So fear is an advantageous evolutionary mechanism for, for humans. And it's important that we normalize it and we recognize it, but it's also important that we understand that we have the ability of disabling those fear responses by looking at mm-hmm. information. And so, so much of what my account does that I don't really think any other account does is I take all Incredible. the data. I take all the data and I plot every single trend to, to, to show people like, look, this is what the data, and, and, and I'm actually pretty predictive. So it's kind of interesting that I took a look at, um, I download the CDC data like once a week for every state for the last year, since mm-hmm. December, since since vaccination started, right? And I downloaded and I plotted and I look at the trends to see where vaccinations are going. And like a week ago, over a week ago, I already had plotted that vaccinations were going up. And the places I, I did a I did a plot, a really nice right. plot as a function mm-hmm. of uh number of cases per hundred thousand. And you mm-hmm. can see there was a very nice linear correlation between vaccinations and the the, the outbreak numbers. So 
obviously people are responding to the fact that there are more local infections and they need to get vaccinated. And you could see that. You're talking about in the states like Florida, Arkansas, Alabama, where they've had huge outbreaks and people are like, oh my gosh, it's real. It's not a hoax. Exactly. And we we know this. We know that part of the reason why people don't vaccinate, if you take a look at the work from like, um, you know, the, 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 the vaccine alliance, uh, the Gabby network, like they, and I, I actually have a great post on this, but I don't want to spoil it. Um, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll tell you, I actually plotted vaccine attitudes as a function of GDP, and the correlation is right there. Oh wow! So that's coming out hopefully this week or maybe next week. Uh, and and I and I and I adjusted for everything. I adjusted for education. I adjusted for access to like public health. Like all these things have been adjusted for, and you see a clear correlation between vaccine attitudes and GDP per capita. So it's like countries who don't experience the outbreaks forget. They get complacent. And so like that's what's happening. You're you're seeing it here in the US too, right? A lot of these rural communities before perhaps, Mm -hmm. because they're they are more interdispersed, right? So they probably were like, oh, I'm not worried about it. Like because they they weren't seeing as much as the spread. You know, rural communities mm-hmm. do have an advantage that they are more spread out. So there's, you know, it's not like the cities where you see these huge waves like in Los Angeles or in New York. But now Delta is a whole new ball game. I mean, I pretty, I, I, I kid with some of like the other um, scientific communicators and I tell them like, do you guys think that we just kind of reboot our Instagram account with Delta? Because we're learning entirely different things i mean the vaccines are still working but the information is still pretty fluid um and i do think that now like the what was once maybe a far threat is more of a perceived threat and i love to quote seth seth berkeley who says vaccines are victim of their own success because when they work we see nothing Mm -hmm. like we see not we, we we experience nothing but the absence of disease and so people right. forget. And that's why that relationship is there. And we're seeing it in the United States also, right, locally. Hey, well, it's happening in New York. I'm from New York where we were hit so hard, so early, so fast. And people are thinking, well, we have herd immunity. It's gone. It's over. And it's a whole other approach now. It's like COVID is over. Yeah. Yeah. It yeah. <laughs> no, it's not over. Nowhere near over. <laughs> So I want to go back for a second to that that outbreak, because this is the outbreak that made the CDC decide that everybody has to start wearing masks again, even if they were vaccinated, because their conclusion based on this was that vaccinated can spread just like the unvaccinated. So I just want to go back to that just for a minute, because I again want to put it in context that this was, again, a very like intimate, close, you know, uh, exposure. And I think that they measured they, they compare, they did a proxy of viral load by yeah. doing the PCRs. Am I correct about that? Yeah, but that, that there, there's, there's limitations with that because a PCR, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, it's, yes, you get a viral load, but it, it doesn't really tell you much about whether it's infectious. And then you're, they were only mm-hmm. picking up one point in time. So the, the, the later right. preprint that came out looked at the viral load as a function of time. And then you see that the vaccinated people those viral loads are dropping off because like those cycle right. thresholds are increasing. Right. And so, so there's a bit of that, you know, we all, as I said, also like, you know, the biggest thing with the people that don't think this is real, they say, well, PCR doesn't work. And what they're really alluding to is the fact that PCR doesn't tell you whether you're contagious or not. It mm-hmm. tell you that you are sick or you've been sick. You may not be contagious, but it doesn't really tell you whether, you know, you're infectious. And so, 
um, with with these PCRs, we have to be careful because, as I said, like yes, they're a good proxy. They're a better proxy when you're talking about like the same group of people, right? Unvaccinated mm-hmm. versus unvaccinated. I feel like that's a more like apples to apples comparison. Like mm-hmm. once you start talking about unvaccinated to vaccinated. I think the conversation really changes. And so there were limitations with that data. Like we also, a big part of this, and we know this, we know that COVID is driven by super spreading events. And so this is one of the things that I pointed out in my post uh, uh, to it, which was, I want to see the ranges. I want to see those viral loads for that person who might be, you know, behind a super spreading event versus the person you know, in the unvaccinated group who might be like the super spreader, right? Because Mm. that is really important. And these are what we call like these ecological fallacies where people try to apply the average to like the whole group. And Mm. we can't do that with SARS-CoV-2 because we know that it's driven by super spreading events. I think the statistics are that, you know, at any given time, 2% of the people infected carry 90% of the, of, of the virus, um, oh, wow. And that, you know, and that, what is it, like 10 to 20% of the people drive 80% of the infections. That's what I hear, 20% and 80%. Exactly. And so it is really important that we pay attention to those details because we don't have a complete picture. We really don't. And I, and I, and, and I don't think, and because what we're seeing right now is primarily, um, you know, unvaccinated people in the hospitals. I, I can't imagine like those viral loads, you know, the real, you know, virus, you know, being active in, in, in people's like um, body for as long, right? And replicate, you know, it, we, we are vaccinated, right? We have all, our, our immune system has been primed and boosted with those neutralizing antibodies, which we know are key in being able to like, you know, stop replication, even if we get infected, right? Eventually, like those, the immune system is like, oh, wait, I've seen this before, wakes up and prevents the infection from, you know, driving deeper into the lungs, which is what I think we're seeing, because it replicates so much faster. I think that's some of the anecdotal data behind the the different symptoms, right? It was probably like, you know, happening mm-hmm. more like, you know, in, in the upper respiratory airway, as opposed to like in the mm-hmm. lower respiratory airway. Um, but I feel like the picture is really incomplete. in as far as contagiousness, and as I said, it's, it's because there's, there's limitations to any data set. Right. So back to Israel, um, you know, because in my communities, the, the data from Israel is being shared on WhatsApp groups to everybody who wants it. Um, and I, I personally am finding it confusing. They're saying things like, well, you know, a huge percentage of the hospitalized have been vaccinated. You know, a certain percentage of the, of the, you know, people who were, you know, in the ICU have been vaccinated. And so people are hearing and they're assuming, oh, see, the vaccines don't work. <sighs> now I know it goes back to the base rate. Yeah, it goes back to I, the I base think that, rate. And, 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 right. you know, and, and as I said, there are a couple of things. So of course, there's always a base rate, right? Um, so Israel has a very high portion of its population, right? I think where you guys are like 70% right now, almost of the of the adult population, or the total 65%, population. 65%, but when you but go you, to the elderly, it's almost 100%. Yeah, exactly. And also to, you know, I actually learned about this recently, because I was looking at Israeli data. Um, you know, Israel has a lot of children compared to other OECD mm-hmm. countries. So I think the average is mm-hmm. three children per woman, which is much higher than other countries. So 
so most of the eligible population in Israel or that or that's at higher risk as well, right, is right. vaccinated. So that's the other thing to consider. So we also now are competitor, comp- comparing a young population that we know is not as very high risk, right? So if you're if you're like in your if you're a kid or you're in your teens or in your twenties, you're you're at much lower risk from a poor outcome, right? We know that those statistics you know skew very favorably in as far as like having a severe disease or being hospitalized. The risk is not zero, but it's much much lower. And if you look now at populations that are older. Even with vaccination. So again, we, people are comparing like apples to oranges, right? So mm-hmm. a, a, a person who is much, we also know that the immune system changes as we age, right? And so, and especially with SARS-CoV-2, we see that, uh, you know, there's a, you know, the, the, the case fatality ratio scales with, with age. So, so we know that it's right. one of the driving factors of, 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 of mortality and morbidity. And so what's important to have in mind here is that, yeah, like if if the only people that are getting infected without vaccines are people that are not likely to die and your vaccines are not 100% effective because they're not, right? You, we still have the breakthroughs. Then yeah, and I actually have a whole infographic where I show that. I actually do, mm-hmm. run the example and I and I show, oh, compare an older population with a younger population, right? And then you're going to start again hearing the reports. Oh, there's more people hospitalized in the vaccinated group than the unvaccinated group. And I'm like, yeah, because the unvaccinated group is very unlikely to die in the first place. Right. Now, we do have to consider whether or not, you know, um, you know, people of a certain age or people who are immunocompromised might need a booster like a Delta. Right. I'm actually more in favor of a Delta like specific booster. I mean, the data looked great. Mm. Uh, the data looked great um, uh, from, um, I think that, I think it was in Israel, right? But it, actually the Pfizer data, the latest Pfizer data looked really, really good with that, you know, third booster. But again, that was like an immunogenicity study. It wasn't an, it was not a kind of effectiveness study, a real life. Now, mm. what's really fascinating is that, um I, I did see a report yesterday that they sent me about how people there is less reinfection in those who have had had an infection before in Israel. But but mind you that most people in Israel have gotten vaccinated. So even people who had an infection, right. exactly right. And so what I think is that we we already know that if you've been infected. Right. And you have you mm-hmm. get your two doses. You have a lot more protection than a person who just gets like the two doses. Right. And I'm talking about like uh, antibody. Right. Neutralizing. I'm not talking about necessarily like effectiveness. Right. So I wouldn't be surprised if, yes, if we see less, you know, we see we don't see as much reinfection in that group because. They've been infected already. And we know that the vaccines expand the immune response, especially that B cell immune response and as far as the different types of epitopes that it can recognize. Um, it, so it's truly amazing. And, and, and so, so again, a lot of it goes into like the headline, but it doesn't ever capture like the nuance, right? And, 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 it, and it's all in those details. It's all in the context of like the situation, right? So when I hear a report saying, oh, you know, there's less infection and people with natural immunity, I'm like, well, wait, mm-hmm. wait, wait, let's back up. Let's back up. Those people have been fully vaccinated, right? Also, 
you have to remember that the people that were infected and probably didn't mount an immune response likely died, right? Mm-hmm. So you don't have that population. Natural selection that happens. Exactly. Natural right? selection. Exactly. So you don't have that population. Especially of the elderly and higher risk. Especially in the elderly, right? So again, so you're comparing a population that already we know has a robust immune response, probably younger people, to now people who've been vaccinated, who are likely, you know, older, because because the breakthroughs, sadly, the breakthroughs that are happening are happening in a lot of older people, right? People with who whose you know immune response uh, is not as strong, or have like you know who are immunocompromised. We know we already know for data for older adults that the, you know the the effectiveness. Is it's not you know it's not as high as when you compare it to like the whole group, right? So it's still pretty high. Mm. But with Delta, right. as I said, with Delta, we already see like a ten percent reduction, roughly, right, in in, in effectiveness, seven to ten percent reduction. So you can imagine that for the in all, not just not just the high risk. The high risk would be greater. Reduction. Exactly, exactly for the high. Mm. So that's why the whole conversation about whether we want to do like a booster for that specific, and to me, it like makes sense, right? It it does make mm-hmm. sense um, to have like that booster. Right, because we we know that the elderly have a process called immunosenescence, and this is true for you know where their where their immunity declines, and that's after natural infection as well. Mm-hmm. Correct, correct. So I just want to go back over. I'm glad you brought up natural infection because that is I'm hearing it more. I'm sure you're hearing it too. I'm hearing more and more oh, every people day. asking. Every single day, I want to hear about reinfection. No one's talking about reinfection. I don't trust it because no one's talking about reinfection. Yeah, so, and I think you yeah. brought up one of the points is we can't tease out anymore. Yeah. Once you're trying to look at the population that's been infected and not vaccinated, that's no longer representative of any other population. Exactly. So I think it's really important because this is a lot of what I do. And so, and I always like the example of pesticides, and I'm going to explain why. When you buy a piece of fruit, you know, that's regulated, right? So you, you they want to mm-hmm. make sure that you don't get a toxic dose, right, of pesticides, right, mm-hmm. whatever that limit is. So they find out what that toxicity is, and then they divide by 10,000. And that's the limit. And the reason they do that is to account for uncertainty. So they're, they're being right. very conservative. They're saying, it's like you as a, you know, as a pediatrician, you do this every day every day, right? With your, with your patients, mm-hmm. you have to account for that uncertainty. And you say, Oh, you know what? I'm going to just treat you with this just in, you know, because, you know, maybe for that specific person, like, you know, the, the, the benefits of the intervention outweigh the risk and you're taking into account that uncertainty. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think people forget, cause there's a lot of, you know, discussion about this. It's like what we're doing when we're asking people that have had an infection to vaccinate, is to help us account for that uncertainty. There's a lot of variability in the natural, you know, in, in natural infection and that immune response. We know that up to 10% of the people don't seroconvert. We don't know how long immunity lasts, right? We, we, you know, we also know that they do produce less, you know, neutralizing antibody teeters and people that have been vaccinated, you know, for natural infection, if you compare, Again, we don't really know what that translates to in terms of like, you know, effectiveness or like vaccine efficacy, because we don't have like that, you know, we have some initial correlation of neutralizing, you know, yeah, neutralizing Mm -hmm. titers and, and, uh, and then effectiveness or efficacy, but we don't really, that's still like a big question. It's one of the, the unanswered questions. What levels of antibodies correspond to, you know, to immune protection? Right. And, and 
Right. And I've heard of so many people checking their antibodies. Yeah. And I'm like, don't do that. Right. Yeah. Like, right, I'll tell you the truth. I just did. I just did. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that I wasn't going to know what to do with the results. Yeah. <laughs> like, what does that number mean? It no. doesn't really tell you much. And so, so it's really no. important. But, 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 but then I, I think people forget that part of it is that we want to account for this uncertainty, just like we need to account for that uncertainty when they spray our foods with pesticides, mm-hmm. right? We want to make sure that it's nowhere near like the toxic right. levels. And and so I always right. like that example because it, it really, you know, like look at what Canada did. Canada had a very specific situation. They couldn't get enough doses. And so they had to account for the uncertainty and they decided, and I think it was, it was a excellent public health strategy. They said at that time, Delta wasn't prevalent, right? And they said, well, you know, we know one dose is about 80% protective, so let's just delay the dose. Again, that is accounting mm-hmm. for uncertainty. So they said, we'd rather get more people vaccinated um, than just having it because they they are recognizing with the data that, oh, wow, like one dose, one dose of mRNA is highly protective. Um, it is curbing infection. It's helping. That's just, of course, this was all before Delta. Uh, and we know that the best way of controlling spread is to have more people immunized. Mm-hmm. So it's, 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 it's another example of it. And so I think people really forget that when, you know, the whole idea behind asking, you know, people who have had a natural infection to get vaccinated is to account for that uncertainty. Uh, and also, you know, we, I am, I'm, you know, I don't have like data. I'm looking through databases. I actually have a few on my link tree that where they track reinfection. Um, and and also, you know, part of that is like I am hearing more anecdotal reports of reinfection. Mm-hmm, me too. Of people who have right. had it, and 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 I, you know, and honestly, you know, and I'm going to agree with Jessica Malati Rivera because I had her, you know, in 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 a, in a panel discussion that I moderated, and she mm-hmm. she 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 was very clear, and I couldn't agree more. And as a person who's very data driven, I could use more data. And like, I do not think right. that we are collecting enough. I think Israel mm-hmm. is exemplary in how it collects data. I also think that the UK, of course, you know, okay. you know, the UK has a centralized healthcare system, which really helps. I think that Israel there, has like five different systems, right? Is that correct? With how the Israel data is collected? I, I don't think so. I, I thought it was centralized, but centralized. you know what the UK is doing that I don't think Israel is doing is the UK is tracking reinfection. And yeah. that is the only place I know that is tracking reinfection. Yeah. It is really and important. Data, I think it's showing, yeah, that it's about one and a half times the reinfection rate with Delta. Yeah. So we, we are learning that it is a higher, but it, it appears to be low, but it's so hard to know if you're not going to be able to tease out the vaccinated. Exactly. And you're not going to be able to like, exactly. And then the, the, the question is, because we don't have a good understanding of what those antibodies, right? We, I mean, even for the vaccinated mm-hmm. people, it's like what level of antibodies confer protection? You know, as I said, remember, I think I was saying earlier, it's like, you know, claims and pseudoscience creeps in the cracks of the unknown. Right. right? People hate uncertainty. Oh, yeah. And it's kind of funny because I love it. You know, like, you know, I, 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 I really, I zone. <laughs> yeah, I love uncertainty because it, that's where I think I always say, you know, that's where the real discussion is at mm-hmm. in uncertainty. Right. And, and I really encourage people to, 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 to do that, to, to look at that, to look at, you know, people's people argue because they have different perceptions of risk and uncertainty. Right. right. And, and I think it's really important that we wrap our minds around that about how important it is for us to like, to look at that. If you I mean, 
even like when you look at what's happening right now, like in the communities, uh, you know, wellness communities, you know, it's a lot of the pseudoscience, right? And you probably have seen mm-hmm. this a lot in your practice, mm-hmm. you know, patients who are trying mm-hmm. these non-approved methods. Um, and, and, you know, and, and, as, and as a risk, you know, I'm a person that analyzes risk. And part of that is examining behavior, right? There, there, there are behaviors that, um, that drive what we call failure modes. And so, mm-hmm. you know, we know that in the medical establishment for, for a lot of people, you know, especially in the U.S. because of the way the healthcare system is, it's, it's, it's hard sometimes for a provider to spend that much time right. with the patient. Right. And, and it's, you know, and, 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 and at the same time, as I was saying, we are living longer. So we're living longer. We're experiencing more disease. And so it, things haven't like scaled. I think it's kind of fascinating. We're like, we've only been living this long for like a hundred years. And yeah, like the medical community doesn't have all the answers because it happened too quickly. Like cortical steroids, antibiotics and vaccinations made our lives better and longer. But that also means that now we have more chronic disease. And, right. and so what you see happening, especially in the medical community, you probably live through this. You see it in your practices. Like people think that because science doesn't have like the answers to what are the triggers and, you know, causative answers, uh, causative like factors behind chronic disease. You, these are the cracks in knowledge. And so that's where the mm-hmm. pseudoscience thrives and the pseudoscientific community comes in and says, well, I know. And it's some right. weird like cherry picked like, you know, non-contextual argument about something. And because they don't do, they don't do controlled trials, they can make claims of anything, right? But you know what, though, it's even more challenging than that since the pandemic, you know, because the amount of uncertainty has gone on steroids too. Yeah. (laughs) You know, and, and, you know, everybody really wants, we can't, so many people can't stand it and they want answers. And so there's, there's an unbelievable parade of people with legitimate credentials, I don't even know how you would address that. It's not as simple as, you know, the classic anti-vaxxer pseudoscience anymore. Yeah, yeah, it's it's it's, it's a lot. It's a lot. It's coming from all angles, honestly. Uh, and that's why I, I you know, I tell people don't follow a person, follow the data. Right. Exactly. You know, I have a go back to your yeah. Instagram. You have so much good posts on that. <laughs> we could do like 10 talks on your Instagram posts. And that's why I show data. And and one of the right. things I'm not sure if you noticed, one of the things that I really like to do in my account, because I like to lead by example, you know, you know, I'm a person with a background in data. And I have some background, you know, um, with epidemiology, and I know the statistics and all that lots of statistics. So you know, I do statistics daily. Um, and, you know, and I have my experiences with, you know, doing like sensors and biomedical, my PhD was very interdisciplinary. But at the same token, I'm not an expert and I don't pretend to be. And one of the things that I've right. been doing in my account for a while now is I use the platform to elevate the content of other people. And I do a right. lot of collaborations. And what I'm trying mm-hmm. to show people is like, hey, you know what? It's okay for you to not know something. Like, you know, it's totally okay. You know, you can still speak to it, but don't be afraid to reach out to somebody who actually knows you know, like what they're, what, what, what they're talking about with more detail and more nuance than you would, because unless you are an expert in a field, you're going to miss out on a whole bunch of things. Right. I mean, right. I could read a paper in virology and I'm pretty sure that I only would capture like 20% of it. Whereas if I work with my friend Morgan, who's a virologist, 
she'll be able to pick up every little bit of it, right? And so I think, you know, yeah, it's important. It's important for us to do that, you know, to emphasize that. It's really true. I was listening to a podcast on that Brazilian jiu-jitsu one that you were on. (laughs) He interviewed this conspiracy theory guy who who studies conspiracy theories. Anyway, he said we have epistemic interdependence, which sounds really fancy, but means like we depend on people who know about their specific fields. And so that's one of the problems that people are, are, are depending on the wrong people. And it's very tricky because they're not just depending on Instagram influencers. I mean, it's easy to say, don't get your medical information from an Instagram influencer. Exactly. Yeah. Right? It's really, and but, as I said, and that's why like I, you know, like, you know, I don't even know the direction that this platform is going, but it's, it's, it's obviously going to go in the direction of collaborations because I really, mm-hmm want to open people's mind. And I'm, and, and one of the things that I'm, I'm actually looking at is whether eventually, you know, I do something called like, I think I have a title for it called nuance, where we bring in people that have mm. different perceptions of the same topic. And we and, and, and because I'm more at the, you know, I, I take more the angle of risk analysis, which by the way, it's, it's science driven. So risk analysis is not mm. just making things up. Risk analysis right. takes like the best available evidence to calculate a risk, right? And that's kind of like the angle that I interject in a lot of my posts, right? And so, but I think it is important that we have like some of these open discussions so people, so to educate people, right? Just to educate them on like, I think that right now people don't know what are the right questions to ask. Obviously, most mm-hmm. people don't know how to read or interpret a study. Uh, they, you know, most people don't have a good understanding of like statistics. And most people don't also don't seem to acknowledge the limitations of their own expertise, which is like the Dunning-Kruger effect. In fact, they were, right, from, they were both right. from Cornell. I actually learned that recently. I did not know that they were both at Cornell. Oh, wow. uh, both, yeah, both. I think they were both psychologists or sociologists. And so, right. and so, 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 so Dunning Kruger, yeah. just people, people don't know, means that a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. Exactly. It's like, it's, <laughs> I think that what it really means is that the more you know, the the more you realize, the less you know. How little you know, right? right. How little you know, right? right? And, right. and, and you and, may and, know a little yeah. bit, exactly. And and and, and, you know, a lot. You know, and, and and then all the people that are, that are scientists, you know, we recognize the the limitations of our own understanding, and we're like, oh wait, I cannot talk about that. Like maybe I can, but let me reach out to somebody who's better versed, because you know, science is a very humble profession, right? And science is acknowledging you don't know something, so you could figure it out. So you know, so it it really truly is. I mean, that's like the whole framework of the scientific method. It's like, oh, I don't know this. Let me go figure it out. And so I think it right. is. Yeah, and there's a difference between that and, you know, following the data versus following a person who's making claims without any data. But I think people do that, though, because it goes back to that epistemic interdependence. If you don't trust and you say, I trust this person, they're part of my culture or they're anti, you know, establishment and I'm anti-establishment, then you're depending on them because you know you can't do it yourself. So in a way, you are depending on your expert. The problem is, how do you know which is a good expert? Exactly. And as I said, and it's, there's a, there's, I did a great post on this, which is like, this is not a cult, right? Science is not a cult. I love that. Yeah. We don't follow, yeah, we don't follow a person. We follow like the data and the methods. And that's honestly, you know, when I first started doing this, I was just relaying information to friends and family. And now that it's taken another like shape and form, it, you know, you probably notice that it's about educating like my community Mm -hmm. 
about data and methods and methodology right. and limitations and questions that you need to ask because my whole goal is to give my audience the tools they need so that I can eventually retire from doing this. But no, no, it's, it's really, you know, I think that the problem is bigger, I think, because we have so much information available at our fingertips right now. Uh, it, it's, it's becoming more critical for us to educate people on, you know, on, on, on how to read you know, these scientific mm-hmm. papers and scientific literacy and, uh, and, and get people desensitized from like these emotional neural feedback mm-hmm. loops that are driven by like fear responses. Mm-hmm. Cause we, that's, I mean, that's what's happening. And I, and I, and, right. and one of the reasons why I, I abstain from using like fear mongering, you probably notice that mm-hmm. there are some accounts yeah. that many accounts that try to like do this emotional response. I recently mm-hmm. saw one where somebody made a claim Oh, a virus is going to come back, mutate and kill you. I'm like, no, that's actually not even true. Right? Like, that's not like, literally, it's not true. First, you cannot predict the way a virus is going to mutate, because it's completely at random. And second, the more deadly a virus is, the less likely it is to spread. So, right. yeah. so like there's a lot of nuance, right? Like that's not a statement, and, but, but you see a lot of these emotional responses. And the reason I abstain from that and I go right for the data is because I am trying to get people to, again, go top down, you know, like top right. down, not bottom up. I want right. them to use their right. prefrontal cortex and think about something before they elicit that emotional response as opposed to immediately trying to trigger an emotional response. And the reason I do that is because if people are under duress, if people are in a state of fear and anxiety, they are more susceptible to misinformation. And so we also have scientific, as scientific communities, we have to be cognizant of that. If you start, you know, throwing your audience into like a frenzy, guess what? They're going to start looking and looking and looking and looking for stuff because that's what the, you know, the, 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 the top down, uh, the, the, the top down approach wants to do is to calm the nervous brain by looking for more information, which means that this person is going to be more likely to run into misinformation, which is going to trigger the other feedback loop. So it's kind of like this continuous cycle of fear. And we, right. we, or, I, or anxiety looking for control and looking for certainty. Exactly. And, exactly. Yeah. And so much of what I'm trying to do by being so data driven and I do, and I get messages. You, you would be surprised the messages that I get from people. They say to me, you know, things like, Oh, your account is so soothing. Like it's, I love it because <laughs> it's, and I think that's one of the reasons why Ardiana chose it because her message was very non-confrontational. I mean, if you notice her messaging on her post, where she said, I'm vaccinated. Max was very like, oh, this is a gentle reminder that we get vaccinated Aww. for, you know. And so it was very like, you know, subtle and very gentle. And and so, you know, and, and that's kind of like what I, I try to do. I also try to do more positive messaging than negative mm-hmm. messaging. Uh, people are really tired and exhausted. And I just right. don't think that's really conducive to people learning and learning well. And, and I don't want, you know, I, I struggled with anxiety many years ago. I don't want people to be in that state either. I don't think right. it's healthy. We are though. Yeah, We're I all know. like that. I know, but that's why I tell people like, come to my account because it's like, it's very calming. It's very, it's like the real data. And I present like, you know, and most of the data that I, I'm presenting lately is just, nobody's doing it. Like you're not seeing it in the New York times. You're not seeing it anywhere. Like I'm plotting the real world trends and I do like the analysis and 
you know, I work with the pediomologist cat a lot. We just submitted an abstract and I think we're going to work on another one. So we do like, awesome. the, like the work that you're seeing on my account is it's, you know, I mean, every now and then I, you know, I take a Twitter thread and I, I always credit the person like, Oh, I got this inspiration right. from this person. But a lot of the stuff that I'm doing is just like stuff that could be going into like journals. And I just, I'm like, Oh, I don't want to write a paper. <laughs> <I'm just kidding. laughs> um, no, but it's, it's amazing because it empowers regular people. It's respecting their intelligence and it's building trust. And we need so much. I wish I could amplify you like everywhere. I'm glad that Ariana Grande. I know. <laughs> you know, know right? 50,000 followers. Yeah. And I want to let you go because I promised you that I wouldn't take more of your time. But people can find you on Nini and the Brain, N-I-N-I and the Brain. And I'm really hoping for people who don't use Instagram because I know a bunch that we can um, get at least some of your material in PDF format. And, yeah. And I'm working you know, on a website. It- so that'll be up soon. <gasps> Yay. Yeah. So everything is going to be, honestly, it's just so much work that eventually I caved and I hired somebody to help me put all oh, of the good. content on a website because it's just too much work. I won't be able to too much. Yeah, get it done. So I do not understand how you do it. I really don't. And I encourage everybody who has Instagram. And if not, we'll try to figure out ways to get this information to you. Nini and the Brain, thank you so, so much for doing this with me. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. My pleasure too. Thanks for listening to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast. If you've enjoyed this, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share this with your friends. For more information, check out our Instagram at joma underscore org. Check out our website, www.joma.org, that's J-O-W-M-A dot org, or email us at health at joma.org.